Welcome to this, uh, the, ne the, the current work in progress talk. Many of you know Michael Aronson. He's an associate professor of cinema studies. He's a film historian uh, with a background in filmmaking. His monograph, Nickelodeon City, Pittsburgh and the Movies, 1905 to 1929, was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2008 and was a finalist for the Theater Library Association's 2009 Best Book Award. He has authored and co-authored articles in leading journals in his fields, including Illuminance, Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, Film History, The Moving Image, and Cinema Journal. He is the co-developer with Elizabeth Peterson and UL Libraries of an ongoing digital project, on, uh, the Oregon Theater Project, which is a repository of original histories related to Oregon movie theaters and movie going around the state and over time. He was awarded the Williams Teaching Award for the project in 2019. In 2022, he won the Thomas F. Herman Award for Specialized Pedagogy and an Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovations Faculty Research Award. Uh, Mike Aronson is currently working on his next monograph, John Hamrick's Blue Mouse Cinema's Northwest Independent Exhibition in the Studio Era. As a 2023-24 OHC Faculty Research Fellow, he's working on a chapter of that book, and today he presents his work in progress uh, which is uh, still, I think, called Clan Mouse, The Birth of a Nation Redux, and White Cultural Nationalism in the 1920s Pacific Northwest. Please join me in welcoming Mike Aronson. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming on a Friday. Thank you to Paul, who I've known forever, um, uh, and the Oregon Humanities Center. Um, so, uh, Paul did. Uh, Paul set me up very nicely. Um, I thought today um, I would. Uh, I'm going to give a little like a formal paper that I actually have printed out. So you, mostly, so you can see images, but it's not super long. I don't know, 25 minutes maybe, and then we can go down whatever rabbit hole people are so inclined to go. But I, I, I was going to start with this organ theater project, which. Paul set up very nicely that uh, uh, I work on with Elizabeth Peterson as a way. I, I, we don't very often kind of talk about where our work comes from, <laughs> like, not, you know, in the kind of small, small, narrow part, like how the hell did I end up writing about this stuff? Um, and uh, I was asking Paul if he was on my search committee so long ago because I came with a dissertation on Pittsburgh and the movies in 1905. And I remember one of the questions I got from the search committee was, so you're going to come to Eugene? Are you going to write a book about Eugene movie theaters? And, you know, I was like, no, no this is like, no way I'm going to do that. That seems like a really stupid idea. Um, I said it nicer than that because obviously I got the job. But, um, <laughs> but of course, you know, never say never. Um, I'm not writing a book about Eugene, but I am writing a book about exhibition in the Pacific Northwest. And actually, this project, the Oregon Theater Project, came out of um, Elizabeth Peterson's master thesis was, was documenting Eugene movie theaters, in which I, I worked with her. And as she did the work, um, and she did it um, uh, with a, a much earlier version of this, um, we started thinking about, well, why do we never teach this stuff? You know, I mean, I'm an exhibition historian, and up to that point, I had never taught any real exhibition history except kind of as part of a larger film history course. And so we created a course and created a website in which 
um, undergraduates uh, document, you know, learn how to do historical methodologies and historical research, um, Oregon newspapers and trade journals, et cetera, to um, document the history of Oregon's uh, movie theater history. And I guess it was 2019. When did the pandemic start? Um, 2020. 20, okay, so it was, it, in 2020, we were teaching a course, uh, and we teach it about every other year, and we do different topics. And that year, um, we did, uh, yeah, you guys have seen this. We did, um, we had the students focus on Portland. Um, these are all, this is, uh, I'm not going to go into this too much right now, but students um, do individual histories of theaters, and they, they, um, produce data around the theaters in terms of uh, geolocation information and other information um, that is uh, designed to be open source and used for comparative studies as well as this is obviously a public facing one. But uh, in 19 or 1920, 2020, um, a student came up to me while we were doing group work and they were like, uh, I found this theater, it's called the Blue Mouse. What's with that? <laughs> like, I would know why a theater was named the Blue Mouse. Um, and, you know, students expect you to kind of know everything about everything. I had never heard of it. Um, at the time, it seemed like almost everything. When you first stumble on it, it's like, oh, this is so unique. There's nothing like this. What a, you know, cute name, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I started to do some research. And this is, I should say, this is not mine. This is, so this is the student's work uh, about it. Um, and... Um, came to realize that it was part of a, a, a circuit, a chain of theaters in the Pacific Northwest owned by a particular exhibitor. Um, and it, it made me, one, think about this idea of chains. Um, he's an independent exhibitor, and I'll talk more about that. Um, but also just kind of how they worked and why they worked. And as I began to do research into him, decided that he would be um, an interesting case study to kind of understand what it meant to be independent, what it meant to work within a regional perspective, um, something that actually most of the film industry in terms of exhibition is structured around, but we don't tend to kind of really figure out what that means. Um, and so the project kind of grew out of that. Um, so today I'm going to talk about what is ultimately a, a one of the chapters uh, in the book, which um, came up as a subject fairly early, um, but uh, kind of just keeps kind of growing. So, so like I said, uh, feel free to, I, like, you're welcome to interrupt me or talk afterwards. Like I said, I'm going to talk for about 20 minutes. But if, you know, I, I have this kind of cinema studies film exhibition history framework. So particularly for people that are not in the field or not in the subfield, if I say something, um, I realize I have the term four walling in there and, you know, Peter knows what that is, but I don't, you know, like, um, so like, say, what the hell is four-walling? I'm fine. I, I don't get distracted too much. Um, so feel free to stop me in the middle. Um, so, okay. That's the subject. Um, does, do you guys, first of all, does anyone know about Beatrice Kennedy? Okay, so all of us live in Oregon. We should all, this, I mean, you know, this, she's one of these people, this is, I mean, one of the great things about doing film history is that you find these things that are just absolutely, and people that are absolutely incredible. And, um, you know, she's, she is not unknown in Oregon's history. If you Google her, she's actually fairly well known, but she's someone that should 
actually be in our, certainly our high school history books, if nothing else. So um, at the end of March 1922, Beatrice Kennedy, who was the young editor of The Advocate, The Advocate was uh, Portland's African-American newspaper, sent an urgent telegram to the NAACP headquarters in, in New York City. Uh, and I'll just summarize. Wire immediately what governors prevented birth of a nation from showing in their states and on what grounds. Advertised to begin showing here Saturday at the Blue Mouse Theater. Wire Governor Olcott in Salem to prevent showing here. Over 5,000 Klansmen reported in the city. The next day, the NAACP National Office contacted the governor and instructed Kennedy to get in touch with the Los Angeles NAACP branch, which they said had succeeded in, quote, banning the film for all time, unquote, which wasn't true, but yeah. Um, in Portland, however, the fight didn't end as Kennedy hoped, in large part because of the tireless efforts of her exhibitor adversary, John Hamrick, owner of the Blue Mouse Theater. Uh, and I'll give you a brief background about him because you've never heard about him. Um, he originally came from St. Louis in the 19-teens, but um, as you can see in this 1935 ad, he was based in Seattle and by the mid-20s was well-known within the wider industry, both regionally and um, nationally. As kids say these days, Hamrick was uh, an exhibitor influencer, um, one that was independent and regionally focused. Eric Hoyt, who's uh, a film historian who does a lot of work kind of reverse engineering uh, data to figure out kind of uh, issues in, in the same time period, has done some good work on New York exhibitors and has determined that their influence comes from three different elements. Uh, one, productivity in building and uh, acquiring theaters, and that is... Hamrick. Two, leadership in the, in the field, and Hamrick was uh, an officer, typically president, of a variety of trade organizations uh, in the region and even a couple national ones, so he fits that. And the ability to become a brand name. See Warner Brothers full page ad of his face as an example of that. So he fits within this model that Eric has suggested. Um, and in the 1921-22 season, he was smiling because despite Kennedy and others' attempts to keep Birth of a Nation out, he'd exhibit the film both in his own theaters as well as road showing it um, across the region, cities, and towns. And not coincidentally, as it turns out, John Hamrick was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and, and we can talk maybe at the end about uh, my research and methodologies and how I came to have his. Ku Klux Klan card. <laughs> um, there's been a lot of great work on Birth of a Nation's, everybody knows of Birth of a Nation, right? Um, uh, contested 1915 premiere and the concurrent rebirth of the so-called Second Klan. However, there's been a lot less that looks beyond the initial release to evaluate the pivotal impact of the film on the nationwide membership of the Klan which went in the 1920s from a few thousand to as many as five million. I'll, I'll talk about this later. All history is local history. It's a, a truism for exhibition historians, but is possibly even more relevant uh, when it comes to the birth's relationship to the 20th century clan, particularly regarding critical issues of distribution, exhibition, censorship, and protest. Um, commercial films, require commercial exhibitors, and in the telling of Birth of a Nation's intersectional history, 
with the Klan, the industry figures who determine the local values of its representation have largely remained absent. So Hamrick, you know, for me anyways, provides a, a useful alternative historiography, a kind of critical inflection point for the hate group and the movie, one that recognizes while the Klan was reborn with Burst's arrival in 1915, I'll get to that in a second, um, its growth was actually quite limited. However, that would rapidly change. I should say there's a great statistic that in 1919, so again, Birth of a Nation comes out for the first time in 1915. 1915 is usually associated with the rise, the kind of rebirth of the Second Clan. In 1919, Atlanta's B'nai B'rith chapter had more membership than all of uh, the current clan. So 1919. But that radically changes. And it radically changes uh, because the clan hires um, the Southern Publicity Association. And that's um, a, uh, where did I go here? Sorry, I'm seeing two different screens. I'll just find their picture. Yeah. There we go. Um, so two-person shop, SPA, Mary Tyler and Edward Clark. Um, and uh, they use modern advertising and a multi-level marketing structure to rapidly grow the supremacist group, a group now designed to appeal to a wider white Protestant audience through the diversification of its portfolio of hatred beyond African-Americans. In the Pacific Northwest, as we all know, had less than 1% African-American population uh, in 1920. So anti-black racism uh, would be largely replaced with anti-Catholic discourse. Clark uh, became the first uh, imperial klegel, which is basically the head salesman at the top of the pyramid, with hundreds of local recruiters, each taking a healthy cut of the $10 initiation fee, the annual fees, the sale of hoods and robes, belt buckles, you name it. Um, then passing on the rest to the SPA and the National Klan. Like the film industry then, the KKK was a modern, vertically structured consumer business in the early 20s. Okay. So in the Pacific Northwest, the local Klegel would be Luther Ivan Powell, that's him there in Portland in 1921. He starts, um, he's uh, 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 a Louisiana boy who um, uh, starts in Oregon in Medford. Uh, the first uh, chapter in the 20s starts in Medford and then moved uh, up to bigger and better things in Portland. And in many ways, he's a model Klan salesman for the 20s. He arrives in Portland in late 1921, and he immediately utilized film as a primary promotional and recruiting tool. However, not by showing Birth of a Nation, but instead the 1920 Fox film, The Face at Your Window. While promotions for the event would exploit the iconography of Griffith's cinematic clan, um, Window isn't about the clan at all. It's rather it's an anti-Russian, anti-immigrant, anti-radical labor organizer melodrama, uh, in which the American Legion actually acts as the great white heroes coming to arbitration rescue in the final reel. Um, while Window does provide uh, the spectacle of angry violent mobs and white crusaders, definitely kind of purposely recalling Birth of a Nation, 
it's also safe to say that the film couldn't provide its audience with the impact of spectacle, and I'll use air quotes here, history offered by birth. However, uh, if Powell's to be believed, and it seems pretty accurate from what I've been able to research, 6,000 people attended the initial Portland event, uh, and likely somewhere in the crowd was Hamrick, who, according to the uh, film trades uh, that week, was in the city um, looking for new opportunities. That's what he's described. Um, the 20s Klan uh, is recognized and recognized that the pedagogical and promotional possibilities uh, of the movies uh, would be a significant and media, more generally, significant aspect of their promotional uh, work. But at the same time, at the structural level, it didn't have easy or inexpensive access to Birth of a Nation, its cinematic urtext. And, you know, if you kind of just read the general histories, you see, oh, the Klan used the Birth of a Nation as a recruiting tool. That's kind of the status quo. But um, they didn't have easy access. It wasn't something that they could just, like, go, go and buy or rent and show. Um, it was still part of the larger industrial system in terms of distribution and exhibition. John Hamrick, as a, as a successful exhibitor, though, did. Uh, and he contracted with uh, United Artists um, for the region's rights to the film that same year. Uh, and again, in case you don't know, in 1915, when the film is produced, um, it is uh, not a United Artists product, right? Um, it's uh, produced by uh, uh, two brothers, Aikens and, and Griffith, and in its original uh, formula. It was roadshowed by them in the big in the bigger cities. They took it there and um, did elaborate shows. But uh, Griffith joins United Artists. He's one of the the four founders of United Artists, and so the film becomes negotiated as part of the United Artists distribution system. Then, um, and so he contracts with United Artists for the Pacific Northwest uh, uh, West region's rights to the film. Uh, in 1921. Uh, and so while exhibiting Birth of a Nation across the Pacific Northwest would align with his white nationalist tendencies, it also um, directly benefited his regional professional goals. So Hamrick, one of the things I've become fascinated with was, I mean, he's uh, a hustler. Um, but interestingly, by 1921, um, he's really well established uh, and part of the establishment and has the kind of um, uh, influence that someone like uh, Powell would, you know, who's come to the area from somewhere else seeking to establish uh, powerful relationships in a new, what's in essence a new sales territory, right? Um, That's what you do, my, my wife, right? You know, like you go and make friends with the people that are in the region that are influential um, and... Uh, and that's what he does. Klegels, uh, the clan, clan leaders and exhibitors are both, in essence, community-oriented salesmen. Um, and uh, Hamrick additionally uh, shared with Powell the love of a good uh, pyramid scheme. Uh, and uh, Hamrick's uh, kind of trade history is rewritten in the 20s. He becomes this guy who like, started with Nickelodeons. Uh, in, in Missouri and then comes to Seattle. But in fact, what he started with was patent medicines um, in Kansas City, uh, right, you know, 1905, that's Nickelodeon era. 
Um, and this is a, a page, a full page ad in, in the Kansas City uh, newspaper. Um, but it went spectacularly belly up. Um, he was sued. He had taken out, you know, questionable loans with questionable people. Um, and it's pretty clear that, you know, he got out of town to kind of, well, not kind of, to reinvent himself, right? And what's more modern than to reinvent yourself by getting on a train and going out west while imagining yourself as a movie theater uh, exhibitor. It's pretty much the definition of American modernity, um, at least American white modernity, male modernity. Um, so uh, he, used, he used this, uh, you know, successfully, his move to the Pacific Northwest to reinvent himself as uh, an exhibitor impresario. Uh, and along with his, this is his second wife, uh, who he would subsequently divorce and, and marry uh, a third time. But um, the, between his two wives, you know, uh, he established himself as a very visible part of Seattle's Protestant elite, um, uh, joining the right groups. Uh, and you can see this is uh, from the social pages of, of the Seattle newspaper in the 20s. Um, you know, her doing good works for the uh, Children's Orthopedic Hospital. Um, uh, so he established himself as a very visible part of Seattle's Protestant elite, uh, joined the Scottish Masons, uh, which uh, is a fraternal organization clan scholars often describe as a, a front for the Kluxers in the 20s. And is there any Masons here? No. <laughs> uh, I've gotten myself in a bit of trouble with some of them uh, in having this discussion. Um, so, I, I, apparently it's pretty well documented. Um, Hamrick uh, is not what we think of kind of typically as a first-generation American exhibitor. He could trace his ancestors back to Virginia before the War of Independence. Um, you know, in the 17th century. Uh, and he really uh, um, embodies, uh, that's, this came from a, a later uh, thing about, again, about his dream. But um, he uh, really embodies uh, the nativist concept of 100% Americanism that was really flourishing in that time period in the post-World War I era, uh, and which was central to the new Klan's identity. Um, and here you can see, um, kind of, I guess we call that now a dog whistle, not, you know, I guess dog whistles are kind of, now we don't, we just shout it, right, with megaphones. Um, but, uh, uh, but the, you know, there's very clear kind of marking, um, and the same, those both, those are both kind of 1922, uh, uh, illustrations. So fits very much, uh. Into, into that framework. So at, at this point in the early 20s, 21, 22, uh, Hamrick's business was based in Seattle. Um, this is the Seattle Blue Mouse uh, that he built uh, the, the previous year. You can't really see, well, you can kind of see. My favorite part of it are these terracotta mice. Mm. You can see their tails <laughs> that are climbing up the, uh, the theater. Um, and uh, so, but so one in Seattle and then uh, one in Portland as the Portland Blue Mouse and then one in Tacoma as as well. He had other theaters. These were his primary at that time downtown theaters. He also owned um, what we would think of as neighborhood theaters, but were then perceived as suburban theaters. 
Um, Powell would actually move his base from Portland to Seattle at the same time um, for complicated reasons that had to do with uh, infighting in the clan and also the idea of new territory, which is critical when you're building a pyramid. You need new, constant new sources of, 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 of funds. Um, and the clan's unofficial clubhouse was the Palm Cafe, spelled with a K, of course. Um, <laughs> This is actually an ad from the, you know, again, talking about media. Uh, this, is, this was a, the Klan, local Pacific Northwest Klan newspaper. Um, so it's an advertisement from that. Um, and coincidentally, that was just around the corner from the Seattle Blue Mouse. Maybe not coincidentally. But, um, both Hamrick and Powell were hungry to gain more uh, of the Pacific Northwest territory. Uh, and exhibiting Birth of a Nation offered the ability for Hamrick to test out other markets in the region while contributing to the legitimization of an urban clan and connecting smaller towns to, uh, um, into productive kind of clan nodes by tying them into Powell's larger territory. So really win-win for both Powell and Hamrick. Um, before heading out, however, Hamrick would first show the film in June 21st at his downtown Seattle Blue Mouse. Uh, but even in his hometown, Hamrick faced what by then was fairly typical opposition from the local NAACP, which was convincing enough in its concerns that the mayor called for the city's advisory censorship board to ban the film. Hamrick filed a restraining order against the city, which was a pretty typical move uh, those days for that kind of stuff but then still ended up pulling the film out of his theater until the censors could gather and subsequently approve the film, which they did at a meeting held at the city's Elks Lodge, another fraternal club in which uh, Hamrick was a well-known member. Getting the green light, uh, he brought Birth back um, a second time to the same theater, to the same theater that summer, claiming victory in the local press as a win for his fellow citizens to experience the film with both a new print and a 12-person orchestral presentation of its original score. So what did they do to improve the film uh, by censoring it? What did they cut out? So that's a, uh, um, that's a larger, well, I'll talk a little bit. But censorship was very patchwork um, at the time. So typically in the 20s kind of revival of it was they tended to default to whatever they had decided in 1915 mm -hmm. when it originally showed. And um, I don't think I talk about it here, but there were two primary scenes that were seen as most problematic um, where uh, he chases uh, her off the, and you know, she falls off the cliff or gets pushed off the cliff. Um, and, and one other. And so those typically is about 12 minutes of film. Uh, if, a, if a city or, or municipality or whatever had eliminated those in 1915, they, they would then basically agree to the same eliminations. Um, and I'll talk about what happens there. But, um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned these kind of fairly prosaic details of the orchestra and the new print um, because, well, for two reasons. One, they remind us... Um, of the exhibitor as a showman, um, but also the kind of critical logistics that are required to show a film that, like the Klan itself, remained contentious and divisive at the local level. And that, I mean, that should very much, it was not, by the way, it wasn't just the NAACP that was against the Oregon, uh, Oregon's governor at the time was very much in favor of banning the film. Um, and uh, 
Kennedy was actually uh, um, seen as a really uh, important influence with the Portland Censorship Board, et cetera. So it was always, I mean, and a lot of work's been done on it in the 19-teens about how divisive it was and how much pushback there was at the time from both, obviously, from black advocates, but also uh, white as well. Um, formal censorship, as I was saying, the Pacific uh, Northwest was a complex patchwork affair um, from the really most powerful and proactive, which was the Portland Censorship Board, um, to the advisory status of Seattle's board. It didn't have any actual authority. Um, to the ad hoc decisions that were made by sheriffs and mayors and city councils in smaller cities and towns across the region. Um, showmanship and the ability to consistently best beat the protectors, uh, protesters and censors were skill sets that Hamrick had as an exhibitor. And that's really kind of the important part was that exhibitors were well versed in, in the processes of censorship at whatever level they were at. Um, and films rarely were outright banned in this period. Mostly um, it was a process of negotiation, right? And so that was something that Hamrick, again, as opposed to the Klan, was uh, already well versed in. Um, and um, Hamrick was very proud of that ability. Um, as I said, he was influential uh, both within and beyond the region, and evidence of his national impact can be seen here in his uh, Exhibitor Herald series. Exhibitor Herald was a national trade journal uh, on how to succeed in all the different phases of exhibiting. Uh, and one of his first columns was called Never Say Quit, and it was devoted to a success in showing birth of a nation in Spokane, Washington, a city in which Hamrick at the time owned no theaters. Um, in the column, you know, we're not going to go over all of it, but uh, Hamrick makes no mention of his ties to the Klan, and in fact falsely states, and this is from 1925, so kind of post, uh, falsely states that, quote, a good friend of his controlled the film uh, and prevailed on him to, oops, to bring it, uh, I'm really good with this clicker, aren't I? Uh, um, prevailed on him to bring it to Spokane. Uh, the evidence points to that good friend being Klegel Powell, um, who wanted Birth of the Nation to play in Spokane, but who did not own the rights, since we know that Hamrick did. Powell had Hamrick bring the movie there, where he planned to four-wall it, and four-walling is the process of basically renting the entire theater. Um, so you set a price with whoever the ownership is, and then all of the uh, subsequent income comes to you. Um, so four-walling just means to, in essence, temporarily control the theater for where you don't own one. Um, road showing, uh, which is the other major process, usually involves, it could be four-walling where you're paying for the theater, but typically involves a process where the theater gets a certain cut, um, and then the people that bring in the show, you know, get the majority of it. Um, so what he did was he uh, planned to four-wall it at the 1,600-seat Hippodrome, which was the largest theater at the time in Spokane. Uh, because the Klegel was actively working at the time to recruit members to what would become the city's newest Klan chapter. A planning meeting at the local AME church had just been held two weeks before Hamrick arrived in the city because rumors that a new branch of the Klan was being formed, F.A. Stokes, who you see there, was the founder. Uh, he, worked at the, he worked at the local, at the, the kind of nicest uh, hotel in town. 
uh, as a porter, was the founder of the city's NAACP chapter, and he initially convinced the mayor not to allow Hamrick to reshow birth, quote, on the grounds that it put the colored man in the wrong light at this time when the KKK is forming in Spokane, unquote. But as Hamrick describes and records show, he's able to overcome these objections and gain approval, in part by bringing his 12-piece orchestra to town for a preview performance for the city commissioners ahead of the open council meeting the next day. A meeting, according to Hamrick, where, quote, it seemed all the colored race was on hand to give their regular battle against birth of a nation. When the battleground was finally cleared, I got my permit. The winning was worth more to me than the money I made on the engagement. However, by the way, it was a very profitable venture, unquote. And it was a profitable model for what would follow in towns and cities across the Pacific Northwest over the next two years. Not every exhibition of birth by Hamrick was as tightly tied to the arrival of the Klan. Obviously, as Kennedy noted in her telegram, the Klan was already well established in Portland by the time he showed it as Blue Mouse. However, especially in many of the smaller towns where Hamrick showed Birth of a Nation, a Klan chapter appeared within a month or so of the film's re-exhibition. Uh, and uh, one of the chapters in my book is about Astoria, and it's very much true there. I, when I proposed the chapter, it was more about the fire in Astoria. Uh, his theaters, all the theaters burned down. But it turned out that um, at the same, you know, in the same time in which he arrived and showed Birth of a Nation, um, they were recalling their sheriff and replacing him with a Klan member. And in fact, the city council election that year uh, was dominated by the Klan. Um, so there's definitely uh, connections there. The, the Klan grew uh, extremely rapidly in the Pacific Northwest uh, in the early 20s, but it would soon crash and burn starting in 1925. Uh, it's unfortunately safe to say this membership didn't die out due to a decrease in white supremacist ideology, but really more to do with the fact that pyramid schemes run by assholes <laughs> um, have a limited shelf life. Uh, and and that's, that was true not just regionally, but, but nationally. There was a number of, again, I mean, we can talk more about this kind of uh, rapid rise and fall, but uh, there was, uh, particularly like in 1925, there's a very famous case with the grand, I can't remember the title, the head Klegel of Indiana who uh, raped and murdered a young girl and on her, uh, uh, she, she uh, had a deathbed um, uh, state witness statement that did him in, but it also kind of created a massive um, a kind of uh, national pushback. Um, but uh, um, Hamrick removed his dog whistle, um, that 100% disappears uh, from his newspaper ads in early 1924. But unlike the Klan, his um, theater business continues to thrive, and he's soon touting a much different set of relationships uh, with Warner Brothers and Harry Warner in particular, with whom he would develop a long and friendly relationship through the 1950s. Uh, and I just actually found out that he pretty much um, uh, got... Um, uh, he introduced the region to um, Sync Sound, and uh, obviously the jazz singer uh, at his Blue Mouse theaters across the region. And that actually came out of his relationship with Sam Warner, uh, who had married. Um, uh, so Hamrick was on his third marriage with a woman who was 20 years his 
his younger. Uh, and Sam Warner had just married a woman who was, Sam was younger than Hamrick. He was 39 and his new wife was 18. Um, so uh, the two wives uh, connected, being married to older men in the industry. Um, uh, Sam's wife was Catholic, which caused a huge problem in the Warner Brothers. And you would think might cause a problem for Hamrick, but did not. Uh, and that's actually the reason that Hamrick ended up with um, the exclusive rights to sync sound in the Pacific Northwest, his relationship with Sam. Sam sub subsequently died, um, and then he um, ended up doing most of his work in relationship with Harry. Um, the kind of fascinating thing, so this is 1927, uh, and just to kind of wrap up here, leave it really open-ended and messy. Um, so this is 1927. Uh, where uh, the jazz singer played uh, what we say day and date, same time in Portland, Seattle, and Tacoma. Um, and uh, in looking through um, the African-American newspapers uh, of the same time period, this is the Enterprise, which was Seattle's paper. Um, so this is, uh, this is their, the, the African-American Seattle's paper society pages. So... <laughs> So Miss Ruth Anderson, who uh, was African-American, is leaving this week for Howard University, and she entertained a group of our people at the Blue Mouse Theater this week, followed by Supper at Her Home. So um, the ways in which, I mean, one of the things that's really both fascinating and impossible to untangle in some ways, although I'm happy for suggestions, is the contradictions and complexities related to when we combine you know, popular media with uh, white nationalism. Um, and, uh, you know, to leave it, you know, because history is important. <laughs> so um, I came across this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Michael Wolf has wrote a book on Tucker Carlson, and here's what Tucker told him. <laughs> Which... Um, <laughs> Which I guess says history is important, right? <laughs> um, and that uh, that it's that that it's it's useful to understand the particulars um, because the particulars matter, and they and they continue to resonate clearly with people that you know from our perspective is kind of impossible to wrap our heads around, but which obviously continues to kind of reverberate um, moving forward. So. Um, that's the formal part of my show, so thank you. Mike, can I ask you a really quick question? I saw that one of the places where the uh, birth showed was Eugene, Oregon. Mm -hmm. Do you know what theater it showed in? What the theater then was? Uh, did it say there? I, I believe it was the High Lake. Um, which was, again, a kind of also a regional. There was one in Portland and uh, uh, one in Seattle as well. I, I could look it up, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't have... In that case, I don't have direct evidence that he brought it, but, again, the pattern is such that it seemed likely that that's... And the advertisements, which always... In that 21-22 period... Um, so he collaborated with other exhibitors who had theaters in the region. Yeah, so like in the case of Spokane, the Hippodrome was, in essence, 
uh, a multi-use. It had been like the opera house, which was the classic kind of 19th century term for general amusement palace. Um, and at the time, it was not, um, it was in essence kind of unused or being used for one-off events. So he was able to go in there. In some places, they were existing theaters that were operating and he struck deals with them. Um, and uh, in Astoria, for instance, he shows it in the Liberty, which at the time he didn't own. He then subsequently ended up moving in and turning it into a Blue Mouse um, and buying up the other two theaters in town. So. Anti-Semitism works all the time, right? I mean, it's not, and, and I'll come back to that in terms of its relationship to Hollywood, because obviously there's a strong connection there. And it seems, again, kind of contradictory that the, the Klan would use movies as thing, but we'll come back to that in a second. So the, the primary issue with Catholics as framed by the Klan is that they're papists. That they don't answer to God, they answer to the Pope, and therefore, who lives in Italy, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a problem. Um, so uh, that's you know that that that's that's how they divide the the Christianity. Okay. Um, Jews were also a, a, a small portion of the Pacific Northwest population in the time period, but they were there. They were visible. Um, uh, most of the uh, Exhibitors that Hamrick worked with were Jews. From the Klan's perspective, um, the problem with movies in the in the second wave were not the movies they that they were operated by Jews, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's a larger kind of progressive move in general, which is that the movies had the power. Progressive, not in the liberal sense. Progressive in the in the kind of ideological slash movement sense of the nineteenth and early twentieth century. The movies had real potential as an educational force, as a propaganda force. Um, the only problem was who had control over them, mm. right? And so from a clan's perspective, can, you know, wherever it was possible to gain control of that, right, and to use the movies for good, that was to their benefit. And the movies as run by Jews were connected to things, for instance, as bootleggers, right, in, in this time period that were often, you know, uh, described as, as being Jewish. Um, and in fact, the Klan, the Klan was, I said, you know, replaced the sheriff in Astoria. The Klan's primary discourse in this time period in terms of convincing the general population was as law and order right? A return to law and order. You get all these phrases you've all heard, <laughs> you know, like they come back over and over again. But that was, that was the move that actually, I think, from a political sense, allowed them to be successful in this very short period. Um, how many of you like, uh, believe public education is important? <laughs> yeah? Okay, well, the Klan's biggest achievement in Oregon in the 20s was passing a law in the state legislature that required public education for everyone. Why? Because that meant that you couldn't go to Catholic school. <laughs> right? Which again, uh, points to the ways in which... No, I mean, that really. I mean, so the, in 1924, 20, no, 1922, the state legislature was dominated by, by the Klan, and, and the, the, the governor, Olcott, was not replaced with a Klan member, but he was anti-Klan, and he, was, he, he lost the contest. Um, it, again, it was a very short time period, both 
nationally and, and regionally in which the Klan kind of achieved this uh, dominance at the local and regional and state level. Um, and then it, it subsequently collapsed. That, that same law was attempted to pass in Washington and didn't. Um, and uh, Washington was, Oregon was always seen as, as the most important state in the West in terms of the Klan's dominance in the early 20s, mm -hmm. which makes us all happy. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I have two questions. The first is, a, I think, a basic one. Uh, forgive me if I miss this. Do we know why his chain was called the Blue Mouse? Mm. No, I haven't. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, well, so the Blue Mouse, uh, so first of all, nothing is ever unique or original in history, right? So it turns out there's a couple other ones. There's one in Milwaukee and there was one in Baltimore. Um, and though interestingly, when he started to become well-known and influential, other people in the Pacific Northwest started naming there. There's one in Corvallis for a while and some other places in Idaho. And they supposedly asked his permission. It wasn't trademarked, but uh, asked his permission. The, it's, it's the, I'm, I can't speak German, but um, it originally was a, a German operetta, the Blue Mouse, and then it was translated uh, by a very popular uh, American playwright into a, 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 a Broadway play that was a sexual farce. Um, he... Oh, the kind of mythology, the trade mythology was that he went to either Paris or London, depending on the article, and went to a Blue Mouse Cafe with his wife and, and loved the name. But that's, that's bullshit. Um, he, the, he did not, he didn't go to Europe until at least the, the, the well, probably actually the 1950s, I think. Um, but certainly not prior to his opening of the first one. He didn't have the money, for one thing. Um, so it's most likely named after the 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 play, um, and I think it 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 was a way of creating a distinctive name, right? It, it, and subsequently, even though he owned lots of other theaters and actually started another kind of circuit called the Music Boxes that existed in uh, the region, he was always known as you know the Blue Mouse, uh, you know. Exhibitor impresario um, uh, through through his whole career, um, but it also I think it has it had this kind of tension between being both something that was uh, uh, culturally elite, but also if you knew about it was had a certain sexual undercurrent because <laughs> it is very much so some mishmash of that. Yeah, he never, you know, again, like the mythology was that he went to a cafe, particularly in Paris, right? Um, but that's not true. <laughs> uh, so the other one I had was, um, I, so this is a great case study where, you know, the showing of Birth of a Nation really reflects um, Hamrick's white supremacy. I, so I'm just kind of curious of what else he was showing. I mean, mm -hmm. it sounds like he had this relationship with Warner Brothers, I mentioned he was showing Warner's films, but... Uh, are there other instances when you get uh, that kind of like connection between what he's showing and then his ideology? Uh, the, no. Okay. It's very, this is very distinctive. Um, and again, he kind of, I mean, he, he never, he doesn't, for instance, advertise in the clan. I mean, you know, the clan, the clan is, is secret but not hidden. Right. It's this very it's kind of it's, you know, the mask. I mean, like the very fact that they have masks. But in fact, of course, they're parading in this, you know, like it's it's this hide and seek thing. Right. Um, and the 100 percent, I, I you know, he was a businessman first. Right. I think 
uh, in the sense that, I mean, we kind of want to know whether, you know, he shows the she he shows birth of a nation in spite of his business leanings or because of them or because it doesn't matter because the whole area is so racist it does you know there's no effect and of course it's kind of all of those things probably mm-hmm. but birth of a nation really does have this very significant relationship to the second wave of the clan um, and he did show it again i mean he he re- he showed he actually stated uh, all you know true American citizens should see Birth of a Nation every year at least once a year, um, and he showed it in he did show it in twenty six when I f- saw that clan card I was somewhat confused because it says till nineteen twenty six and that seemed like a long like I didn't honestly think he still was a member at that point, um, but he did reshow uh, Birth of a Nation in twenty six. Um, but no, he was an independent exhibitor. So in the 20s, you know, he kind of moves around. He doesn't, you know, as, as things vertically integrate, you know, he's, he's trying to stay independent while still be able to show first-run films that are going to bring in his house. And so he moves around a lot, and it's much more pragmatic, I think, than ideological. Um, and uh, he does, uh, you know, from all things, he does form a relationship with the Warner Brothers. I mean, he's... Harry Warner comes to his house for for happy hour in Palm Springs in the fifties. Um, you know that that's not a business transaction. He's retired at that point. Um, so for whatever reasons, you know, whatever complicated reasons, right? I mean, uh, the simple answer is no. Um, he eventually becomes uh, partners with Fox um, in in the region and comes. Hamrick Evergreen. Evergreen was the Pacific Northwest circuit for Fox. So, um, but, yeah. So that's not a very satisfying answer. But, no, the, the Birth of a Nation, you know, simply was in some ways uh, iconic, and certainly in terms of his exhibition. Yeah. So I, I'm just wondering, uh, what was going on in the U.S. at the time that led to the reception of Birth of a Nation and the rebirth of the Klan? Now, I should know this, but... Uh, I just don't, so I'm asking you. Well, so I think it, yeah. I, I mean, there's all sorts of, there's also, so financially, there's there was a, a short term, I don't know if it's official, but a depression after World War One, right? So a lot of economic uh, issues, and again, typically struck kind of working class people harder than wealthy, all the kinds of, again, we kind of, these cycles come over and over again. The, um, largely, it was uh, uh, anti-alien, Right um, movement, uh, largely related to immigration um, and a desire to uh, uh, pull back from globalism. I mean, again, like it's like it just kind of keeps going over and over again, right? So it was like this kind of and and so Catholicism was a very easy way to point at certain immigrant groups, right? And I'm in Irish and, 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 and Italian, right? Northern Italian, you know, which were often described as black, right? Um, not the color, but like black Irish, et cetera. Um, they were perceived to some extent as non-white in, in that time period. Um, and so I think that, that that all kind of, plus again, like, Pyramid schemes, I mean, like, you know, there's also the kind of uh, monopolization, the kind of corporatization of everything. And like, so there's this moment, I mean, again, the SPA, 
um, really has this kind of foundational role in it and that they figure out in essence how to sell it as a consumer product. Um, and that's why it, uh, you know, that's largely why it kind of, the underlying kind of ideological reasons and then the kind of uh, uh, capital framework that, that made it successful for a short period. That is, I mean, that is, that's the film historian part of me. Yeah. Um, the, the jazz singer and Jolson are another kind of contradictory, complicated yes. um, uh, uh, issue as well. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, and that's, I mean, from my perspective in terms of just kind of exhibition history is we tend to divide up you know, I'm, I'm a, people say, oh, well, I'm a silent film historian, right? But I mean, we kind of divide these things up. And so that's problematic. You know, we do it to, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but to try and understand the path of, of a career in relationship to that transition. Um, and that's actually part of the last, the second to last chapter in this book is about how sound, why and how he ends up uh, engaging in sound ahead of everybody else mm -hmm. in the region. Uh, he mm -hmm. has a year of exclusive access to sound, and that mm -hmm. uh, solidifies his position. Even the, in a in a period in which all of the major studios are dominating, this is the period in which vertical integration becomes, mm -hmm. you know, the point to where some cities only have studio-run theaters, first-run anyways, mm -hmm. and he's an exception to that. So mm -hmm. trying to understand that and the ways in which sound works for him mm -hmm. is not necessarily part of this project, but in, uh, this yeah. particular chapter. Peter, you Thank you, Mike. Just fantastic research. Can't wait for the book. <laughs> I have two questions, both predictable. The first one is, tell us about the card. Yeah, <laughs> we're all asking you the card. And then my second one is, because I know you so well, I know there must be a delicious story about the Masons. So, well. tease just with Paul. Now I'm time to deliver. Um, okay, so it's a, there's not actually, it's not a very delicious story with the Masons. It's actually, I fucked up. But, um, um, but uh, sorry. Um, so the card, yeah, I mean, okay, so we'll go meta, then we'll go specific, right? I mean, as there's lots of historians in here, right? I mean, we that have very sophisticated understandings of how archives, big A, are constructed, right? And one of the really interesting things is, uh, right, both African the African American archive and the white nationalist archive are largely absent from traditional structures for very different reasons, right? But, but both end up being, you know, unspoken a lot of the times. And actually, in doing a lot of research, what's really interesting is that they both start to show up in the archives, little a, in the 60s and 70s, right? Um, as a kind of, and for, for African-American, it's kind of, you know, a broader cultural recognition of, uh, you know, and, and bringing it into the institutional level. Um, for the Klan, it's largely a generation of um, ancestors that found these materials and were both horrified by them, but also recognized that there might be some value. And so like when you look at where clan materials get brought into the archive, a lot of times it's in the 60s and 70s. This card is not in any archive. It is in a personal collection, which you and I know lots about. Um, 
In this case, it's in the personal collection of a white nationalist collector from the Pacific Northwest who is actively engaged in collecting these materials to keep the heritage um, alive. Um, and, uh, and of course, he had, I don't know if he's currently in the Klan, but he, of course, has a long lineage. Um, and is from the South, or, or his family's from the South. He's from Idaho. Um, I met him through a librarian um, because he is a, a fairly serious lay historian, amateur historian, and was looking at the Kennedy papers as well. <laughs> and um, and I'm never at the same time as me. I mean, like, not, you know, but the librarian knew what I was working on, knew what he was working on, because that's what librarians do, um, and connected me, well, yeah, basically passed a message to him, and that. <laughs> so that's, yeah. And he has a lot of cards, let's put it that way. Uh, which is in it because you know they were besides being ephemeral again like it wasn't something you like handed out right this was a secret organization you certainly you know but um, uh, I think he for various reasons he ended up with a lot of uh, this stuff um, I had to I'm, you know I'm working on the manuscript and I had to say to the editor I can't name this person <laughs> in my citations you know will you I don't know what to do will you accept anonymous collection so they did. Why did he let you have it? Doesn't he know what you're doing? That I'm a Jewish Jew? academic <laughs> writing about. <laughs> yeah. So, well, this goes kind of to the Masons um, and actually the Hamrick family. Um, I think for him, it was a, even though, you know, I think there's part of him that probably hates me. Um, but again, he's a, he's a kind of intellectual as well. Again, this is a guy who's bothering to go to look at African American materials in you know things. So I think he wants to see this history visible, um, and he probably won't like ultimately what I do with it. But um, but he you know that was the. Thing. It took, it, he wouldn't let me, so he wouldn't let me take pictures of a lot of stuff. Um, the card was kind of a kind of one-off. Uh, and I don't, and also I honestly didn't feel super comfortable <laughs> meeting with him. Um, but, uh, so subsequently though, so there, uh, um, to get to the Masons, is the Scottish Masons still exist. Uh, fraternal, I mean, fraternal organizations played a massive role in American white and business culture in the, you know, in the first, certainly first half of the 20th century. Um, most of the people associated with them these days are older um, and uh, have, let's just say, they were not pleased with my interests. <laughs> and when they kind of figured it out, shut me down. And that actually, unfortunately, happened with the one existing Hamrick relative who was not a, she was, she's the, I don't know, niece removed, I can't remember exactly. Um, but I, in my, you know, academic hat, was very excited to find all this material. But 
and I recognize that she probably wouldn't be, but I didn't realize the to the level at which that you know, like this guy who she never met, who had been dead for you know eighty five years, the fact that he was part tied to her family, right? And I did find her through Ancestry.com, um, so literally tied to her family, right? I mean, something that you know that people that do that work are, tend to be proud of. So. Um, so she subsequently has not let me have access to, she didn't have time, it wasn't a huge loss, but like she has telegrams between him and Harry Warner that I saw, but never were, was able to photograph. 